like to welcome um, many of you students who are back for the fall, those of you here for the first time. Really, I'm glad that you're here. I, I, we, are, we are not a church that has a separate college ministry. We just want you to jump into a, one of our ethos communities and participate with the rest of the body of Christ in that way. And I know that many of you are just fresh and new here to Evanston, and you're just trying to get settled and find out where you're going to uh, go to church at. We're just glad that you're here. We want to get to meet you. For those of you who are Kellogg students, we hope that you can come, and I can meet you today at the luncheon at Potbelly's. But the fall is, is, is really part of my favorite times uh, in um, my life. I, I love the weather in the fall. I'm actually from the south and from California, so I, I don't dig the cold. And so I love the weather in the fall, and I also love, in the fall, a lot of new things are starting back up again, from school to, to sports. And my kids throughout the years have played fall sports, but what I've noticed in going to their, their sports games and practices and participating and cheering and being a dad with kids in fall sports, I've noticed that things have changed a bit since I was in sports growing up. There's really two areas that things have changed. One is... After the game, the kids get a snack. Now, I don't remember getting a snack after my games. Maybe I feel kind of ripped off. And, and what else, uh, something else they get is at the end of the year, all the kids get a participation trophy, no matter what, no matter how bad their team actually was, they all get a trophy. And, but what happens, I'll just kind of give you a heads up. For when you have kids, you'll know this. As they progress through the years, and as the sports start to get more competitive, the snack's gone. And then the, the participation trophies are gone. And to some kids, this is pretty devastating. They'll be like, where's the snack? Where's my trophy? And, and it's at that point it hits them that... This, this idea of called competition, that if, if, you, if you want the trophy, you've got to win. And the, the better you are, the bigger your trophy. And, 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 and so it's, it's that competition that, that will follow them throughout their lives, even into adulthood. Many of you have, have just come uh, as freshmen uh, to Northwestern because you got in when most people did not get in, right? You have the job that you have likely because you beat someone else out in the job some way. So I don't think there's anything wrong with a healthy dose of competition within our culture that is encouraging and, and builds one another up in their gifts and their calling and, and their skills but what, what happens is that this competition can quickly turn into arrogance and, and pride where we are, are seeking to be the greatest. It can cause us to be disrespectful to one another. It can cause us to hope that, that we each other fit and we hope that you fail. And, and when you succeed, I, I get envious. And, and my guess is in, in a room like this, from the background where most of you are, are coming from and, and your, your striving ways, chances are that most of the people in here struggle with a competitive arrogance for greatness. You want to be great in an arrogant, prideful, competitive way. 
And it's, it's something you know that's there, and it's, and it's something you struggle with. You want to be the greatest professor. You want to be the greatest student. You want to be the greatest pastor. And you want to be better than other people and recognize in that way. You want to be the greatest employee. You want to be the greatest boss. Uh, some of you want to be the greatest parents where you'll be held up as better than all the other parents in here. And some of you even want to be the greatest Christian. Where people will look to you and say, now that's what it looks like to be a Christian. And it's interesting that all this competitive striving for greatness is nothing new. In fact, Jesus' first disciples had the gall. They really did this. They went up to Jesus and they basically said to Jesus, who's the greatest? They really asked him that. Like, who is the top disciple? Who is the MVP disciple? And Jesus looked at them, and he looks at us, and he says, "Uh uh-uh. It's not going to work like that. If you want to follow me, you're going to have to get rid of your competitive arrogance and striving for greatness. And then you have to humble yourself. And humility then you can follow me. You see, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to take our time and say, what does that exactly mean? What do you mean, Jesus, when you want us to follow you in humility? And he spells it out in the book of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 18. If you want to turn there, Matthew chapter 18. We're going through the book of Matthew, and now we're in chapter 18. And so we're just going to look at chapter 18. 18 verses 1 through 20. And it's a pretty long passage, but we're not going to read it this morning. We're just going to kind of take it verse by verse as we see Jesus explaining to his disciples what it means to follow him in humility. So Matthew 18, start in verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So in response to his disciples' power-hungry question, Jesus gets this child and he does a little object lesson here. He tells them that they must turn and become like children. That turning means that they're to repent. That they're to repent of their striving for greatness. And in fact, when you, if you're striving for greatness, it's really just a ploy and a power, power ploy to, to, to be like God. You want to be like God. Just admit it. You want to be greater than others. And only God is great. You're not God. But we try to put ourselves over others. Who is the greatest? It's an arrogance. It's, it's a pride. And Jesus says, you need to repent of that. And he says, he says, repent of that. Turn and become like little children. And little children have no authority. They have no uh, power. They have no rank. And, and they're totally dependent upon others for their existence. And Jesus is saying, we come to him. We come under his reign. We follow him. We, be, we become Christians when we realize, okay, I have nothing to offer you, God except for my sin. I am broken. I am dependent. I totally need your forgiveness in the cross of Jesus Christ. 
I need his righteousness to be mine. I have nothing to offer. Totally depend upon you. So just like children are dependent upon their parents, so we should be be dependent upon God for grace in this life. Yesterday, I went swimming indoors with my kids, and I took my 16-month-old daughter. Any of you who have ever gone swimming with my daughter understand uh, that she thinks that she is the world's greatest uh, Olympic swimmer. At 16 months, she has no fear of water. And I'm carrying her into the water, and the whole time, all she wants to do is turn away and swim on her own, pushing me away. So, you know, being like a good father, I let her do that a few times. <laughs> there she goes, under. All right. And, but she loves going under the water for some reason. But she comes back up, and then she clings to me. And then after a while, she's like, I don't want you anymore. And I'm okay, see you. And there she goes, under the water, clinging to me again. And it's like, we, we, he, she's not a great Olympic swimmer. She's not. She needs me. And in the same way, we need we need to be dependent upon the Father to give us forgiveness in Jesus. And get this, if we are totally dependent upon the Father in Jesus, we get greatness. Look at verse 4 again. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. We get greatness. And, and it's, it's greatness because we have our sins forgiven in Jesus through faith, and we get his righteousness credited to us, or counted to us, where God views us in the righteousness of Christ. And in that way, we get greatness. Are are you understanding this? In the gospel of Jesus Christ, in the gospel of Jesus, there's no need for competitiveness to, to, to strive for greatness because you are accepted by the Father through faith in Jesus. I just told you the greatest news ever. You're accepted by the Father through repentance and faith in Jesus. That means that you can study as hard as you want and you can be faithful, but don't cross that line into moving into the striving for greatness. You can work as hard as you can at work to be faithful, to be the greatest parent you can possibly be in faithfulness, but don't cross that line in striving for this competitive greatness in this arrogant way because we don't need to do that because God, our maker and our savior in Jesus Christ, we're accepted. And so we don't have to cross the line. We can work hard faithfully where I don't have to be better than you. You don't have to be better than me. We're both dependent upon the Father and His grace. That's the gospel. That is the gospel. But as the disciples crossed the line, so we crossed the line. And Jesus knows it. And He called them out. And He calls us out. Because Jesus just didn't come to save individuals and reconcile them to the Father. He also came to put them into community. Can you imagine a room full of people like this? Just just striving people, striving to be great, and say, okay, now go live in community together. How's that going to work? That's going to be a disaster. So Jesus spells it out. This is the way I want you to live with humility in community. And he spells it out. Let's look at the specifics. Verse 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. 
So he's mentioning here one such child and little ones. He's making a little switch here. He's not talking about uh, little kids anymore. He's talking about disciples. He's talking about his followers who have become humbled like a child. And he's saying, as believers humble themselves, are totally dependent upon God, and they come into this Christian community like the church, the church who receives them is to treat them in a gracious and protective way. That means that, that when new believers come among us, and, and, and all believers in general who are among us, we're to receive them like we would receive Jesus, and it, also we're not to cause them to sin. So if we are causing other believers who are precious to God to sin over and over again, and that's our pattern, then, then Jesus is saying, it'd be better off for you to have this large millstone, this huge grinding stone that is that's like a, maybe it's like a thousand pounds tied around your neck, thrown into the sea, and drowned. That'd be better off for you than to face the wrath of God and give an account to him for why you're causing these little ones to stumble. And Jesus is very serious. He's very serious about us not causing our brothers and sisters in Christ to stumble. Can, can you imagine a new believer entering into a church environment and the new believer just comes in fresh, just got uh, a reconciled to God through Jesus, comes in, looks around, wants to know what does it look like to be a Christian? And all they see is people competitively striving for greatness. And what, what does that communicate to them about the gospel? What does that communicate to them about how to live within community? What does that communicate to them about Jesus? And so if, if this new believer walks in here, I, I, I'm wondering, if I said, go look at her life, go look at his life, they model what it means to follow Jesus. W- would that be you? Are, are you a good model that someone should follow as you follow Christ? You can say about yourself, look at me, I'm not perfect, I, got, I mess up, but follow me as I follow Jesus. Do, do you set that pattern? Do you set that model? I mean, I just think about the, the, the incoming freshmen here at, at Northwestern. They, they come in, they're Christians, some of them are Christians, and they want to say, okay, how do I follow Jesus? And, and you know who they're looking at? They're looking at those who are older. Older who are supposed to be following Jesus in humility, in boldness. So you upperclassmen, are you setting the standard and say, hey, follow me as I follow Christ? For those of you who are parents, there's, there's a lot of new moms and dads in here. They're, okay, okay, what do I do with this baby and my job and my spouse? How, how do I do it? And we're supposed to be setting the standard. Say, this is the way, follow me as I follow Christ. But if our lifestyle is causing other people to stumble, Jesus is saying, look, you'd be better off with a Hummer tied around your neck and thrown into Lake Michigan than to give an account for me. He's very serious. Our lives affect other people's lives. Make sure that you're walking and followed by his grace in the footsteps of Christ that sets the pattern for others. He's very serious. Jesus continues, look at verse 7. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Sometimes the church can be guilty of constantly pointing at the world and saying, the world's so worldly and they're going to cause you to do all this sin. I agree with Jesus. Woe to the world. But Jesus, he also clarifies, he says, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. So the idea is don't just point the finger out here. Also point the finger in here. 
we can cause our brothers and sisters to sin just as much as something they can see in the world. We're just as capable of causing and leading others astray as anything that they can find in the world. But the distinction that it's supposed to be between a believer and an unbeliever, because we're just as sinful, we're all together sinful, but the distinction is supposed to be that we actually have the ability now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to get aggressive with sin. We can actually get aggressive with sin in our life. So aggressive, look what Jesus says in verse 8 and 9. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter the life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Yikes. That's a pretty extreme language right there from Jesus. We saw him speak that way in the Sermon on the Mount when he talked about lusting after a woman. Better just gouge out your eye instead. But here, it's a little different take. In this context, he's saying, deal with sin in a drastic way for your benefit and for the benefit of your brothers and sisters in community. So this extreme speech of of going hard after sin is not just for our personal holiness, but it's also for the holiness of our brothers and sisters. And he speaks of hell. Hell is, is, is spoken of a lot by Jesus. And hell is a place for those who have not had their hearts changed, have not repented and put their faith in Jesus. Hell is a place for people who, who are not changed so much where they're, where they're killing sin, dealing with sin in their life. We're saved by grace through faith, but those who are saved by grace through faith will deal with sin in their life. It will be a fight, it will be a struggle, but we'll, we'll be lashing out against it. But hell is a place for those who have not had their heart changed, and they, unturned don't deal with sin. I want you to allow me to be uh, a prophet for a moment. I'm not a prophet, but I sometimes like to think that I am. So let me just be a prophet for a moment and tell you this. Sometime over this next year, at your job or at school or at home, I would say most of you are going to have an opportunity to get ahead in this world just a little bit and to seek after worldly greatness just a little bit, and you'll have to forego that in order to follow Jesus. Let me tell you what I mean. Chances are you're going to have an opportunity to cheat this next year in some way. I don't know how. At school, work, I don't know, home. There's going to be this little small way that you can cheat to get ahead. And you will consider it. And you'll ponder it. saying, should I do that? And Jesus is saying, get aggressive. Deal with those impulses. Deal with those, those, those temptations to sin. And there are some of you in here, you'll have the opportunity to pursue this feeling of greatness through an improper relationship or an impure relationship, and you will consider it. And Jesus says, deal with that. Get aggressive, not just for your benefit, but for the benefit of the community. You don't want to be drowning in the sea. You want to hear him. You want to respond. But as we look around in our church, as we look around in believers in our lives, from time to time, we will see people who seem to fall away from Jesus, who seem to stray, who seem to go away. What do you do with them? Well, look what Jesus says about those who stray. Verse 10. See that you do not spies 
one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. So if you see someone who's, who's straying from the Lord, you're not supposed to despise them or disregard them for their straying tendency. And the reason is because the Father cares for them and even his angels are involved in their care. And I'm not sure how it all works out with regard to the angels, but somehow God uses angels to be involved with the lives of his children. And so if the Father and the angels care about a straying believer, well, we should too. Keep going, verse 12 and 14, through 14. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So you've got a shepherd, he's got 100 sheep. One of them goes astray, he leaves the 99. He goes out, he finds the one, he rejoices. In the same way, the Father cares about straying believers. He does not want them to stray far away from them. But he wants them to repent and, and come back. His heart is to go after them and, and bring them back. And we're supposed to have the same heart. I mean, you can just think about the parents in here. If you, if you have kids, maybe they're adult kids, and they are not following Jesus right now, you, you're praying for them every night, right? And you, and you want to go after them. That's to be our heart. Our hearts be the same way for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are, are straying. We want to do everything that we possibly can to go and get them. But if we're striving for greatness, and if we're striving to try to get ahead, we're not going to take the time to go after our brothers and sisters who are straying. I mean, this is a good word for those of you who are involved in campus ministries. In the fall, in campus ministries, what you're trying to do is you're trying to share the gospel. You're trying to encourage other people to, to come, to hear the word of God, to grow in their faith. And you'll see new people coming, and you'll start getting excited. But you and I both know that chances are, over this summer, a brother or sister in the Lord fell away. And they came back to campus, but they did not bring Jesus with them. And you can say, we got 99 people coming to our group. Isn't this awesome? This is great. And yet there is a one on the campus somewhere who used to be there with you. And they've strayed. And the father's heart says, go after them. Go after them. And the, the picture I have in my mind is uh, when I was here several years ago, uh, we were uh, in a meeting in a different location. I remember two students that would always sit in the front. Uh, they, were, they, were, they were there every week and they were, they, were, they were serious about the Lord and the Word, or, or so it appeared. And then they just disappeared. And, and as I heard later on, there they're just gone. They just strayed. And, and the Father's heart says, go after them. And we all know people that are struggling, that are straying, and we're supposed to go after them. I mean, but what do you do? So you go up to them and you go, you go to them on campus, or they're your friends, you call them, you email them, you say, okay. I mean, what do you do? You go up to them, and then what do you say? Hey. <laughs> well, what do you say? My pastor told me to go after you? I mean, what do you tell them? Well, look, Jesus is really specific. Look, look what he says. Look at verse 15. 
If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Now, let's just stop there. Now, the ESV, that's the version that most of you have in front of. The ESV says, if your brother sins against you, um, which makes it more of a personal conflict between two people. But, but most of the scholars believe and commentators believe that the words against you were not in the earliest and best manuscripts. So, so next week, we're going to get to more of this personal conflict between believers. But here, it's just if your brother sins... And if your sister sins, it's just a, a sin in general. And so if someone, who's your brother or sister, sins, you're to go up to them in private. Don't come talk to me about it. Don't talk to anybody else about it. Go up to them in private. And between the two of you, say, look, I love you, but I've noticed some patterns in your life. You seem to be not that interested in spiritual things anymore and I just want to re- tell you what I see, and I, and I think that you should turn from this and, and come back to Jesus. And, and you want them to repent. You're not better than them. You're not, you're not going to be an arrogant. You're being very full of, of grace, and you love them. And, and say, so, come on, just repent. Now, I know some of you would think, no, if my brothers and sisters in sin, I'm going to give them their space, and I'm not going to bother them. And you think that may be a communication of love. But that's not loving. If I'm about to harm myself and hurt myself, if I'm running from God, you've got to tell me. You don't love me if you don't tell me. And so in the same way, I want to love you and come and be involved in your life and tell you when you're straying. But what if it doesn't work? What if they say, you better get out of my face? What if they say, you better step off? I don't want to hear from you. What do you do then? Oh, well, look at the next step. Verse 16, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. He's like, oh, okay. So I'm going to get two more of my friends uh, that knows this brother or sister in the Lord and say, look, all right, let's go up and let's approach them. Let's tell them, okay, here's your sin. Uh, we love you. We're not better than you. We're arrogant. We really want you to repent. We, we, we just, we, we, we grieve that you're away from us. We really want you back. Come on, repent. And so maybe at that step, They'll repent. But what if they don't? What do you do next? Oh, well, look at the next step. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Oh, wow. So you mean you're to tell the whole church? Yes. Well, what does it look like? Well, some churches do it like at their membership meeting. They'll say, this brother or this sister, they're in sin, and we really want you all to to lovingly pray for them and then go speak with them. Can you imagine a whole church going after you? Yeah, imagine that. Like, you better repent then. You know, a whole church. Uh, some, some churches do it during their, their, um, their communion or their, their, their Lord's Supper time. They'll, so the focus is on the cross, on their sin, and yet repentance and, and forgiveness. And, okay, go after them. So let's say the whole church goes after you. And the person still doesn't listen. Well, you're, you're to treat them as an unbeliever. Specifically, see it here as a Gentile and tax collector. I mean, you were to say, look, we love you, but you're not repenting. And you're, you're just like, like you would treat an unbeliever, like you would continue to give them the gospel and pray for them and, and pray for their repentance. And I just want to say, 
every church that believes the Bible should believe and practice church discipline. But if a church is too focused on getting greater and larger and mega, maybe they won't even take the time to bother with church discipline. I mean, can you imagine broadcasting, our church does church discipline. Yes. Bring in the masses. And it's so interesting. We preach through books of the Bible. And I know that on this Sunday, we have new people to our church. And we're telling you, we believe and practice church discipline. And, and I'm sure you're thinking, great, I've been looking for a church that practices church discipline. That's awesome. I'll bring my friends next week. That's great. But, but it's, it's a loving thing. You should get excited. You're like, really? You love me that much that people will come after me if I'm sinned? And if that doesn't work, more will come after me? And if that doesn't work, the whole church will come after me? Yes! We should want that. We want... You need, you need to go to church. I don't care what church you go to. As long as it's Bible, believe in church and, and people that get in your business. Not in a cult-like, controlling way, but people that love you. And they want to talk to you and confront you and make sure that you're walking with Jesus. This is a great thing. And I want to say, this is the Father's heart. This is the Father's heart. We're not making this stuff up. We didn't make up these, these, these things, these confrontations. We didn't make it up. This is the Father's heart. And God is behind all of it. Finish up. Look, look what it says. Verse 18 and 20. Look at the Father's heart here. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. I mean, I, I know that's been a, a popular uh, prayer circle uh, verse, but it's in the context of church discipline. It's saying that, that God, he's behind us. So as an individual, when you go and confront your brother in sin, God is behind you. When you take two or three, God is behind you. When, when, when a church uh, goes and confronts someone, that's God's will. He wants that to happen. And he agrees with it as long as it lines up with his word. And Jesus is involved with the whole process as we seek out erring brothers and sisters. And the Father is guiding us in our decisions. And that's the way he wants us to live with humility and community. But if we're striving to greatness, we're never going to get around to any of this because it's just about us getting ahead. And instead of encouraging our brothers and sisters, it's more like, I'm going to use you to move on to my next step in life. But God's heart is for a humble community to grow more in Jesus, grow more in seeking greatness in him, and grow more in his righteousness. And one of the primary ways that our, our church, that we've decided that we're going to flesh out this community here, this, this humility community, is something we call our, our ethos communities. But before you even go to any of the ethos communities, because we're doing a little preview week, season next week, before you even, even go there, get the right heart attitude. Are you simply going to look for a group that's going to advance you? 
Are you simply going to look for those that you can be around that can help you move to the next level in your life? Really, the world is full of selfish Christians. We don't need to add any more. We don't always need to do things that benefit us and our greatness. Look for a place where you can serve. Look for people that you can serve uh, with humility and you can build them up and, and you can lift them up. Look for a place where you can invest. Part of our ethos in our church, they're called ethos communities because we're, start, we're trying to live out a certain ethos. And part of our ethos is something called invested sojourners. That means as you sojourn or pass through Evanston, we want you to invest. And for all of you who love to invest in the markets, we're not talking about that kind of investing. Not talking about the kind of investing where you're trying to, to gather more and more for yourself. We're talking about the kind of investing that's a kingdom investing. Whereas you pass through Evanston, don't waste your time here. Find some people to invest in, to give your life to, to serve. Not because you're going to get anything back for your worldly greatness, but because you're serving in the kingdom. You're investing. You already have all the greatness you need and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So you're free from all the pressure. You're totally free. The pressure's off. You don't need to perform for God. You're accepted in the cross and resurrection of Jesus. You're free. And so by faith, you rest in his righteousness, and you kill this competitive arrogance to be greatness in you, and you walk with humility and community. Let's pray. Lord, I just ask that you would forgive me and us for the ways that we are always trying to advance our worldly status or to sinfully striving to move forward. And sometimes it's at the expense of others. We harm others and we hurt others, people we love. We have such a a drive to to, to move ahead. And and yet, Lord, that is sinful. It, It crushes others. It hurts others. So show us how to be people who strive to be great in you, who are faithful, who work hard, who do our jobs better because we're working hard, do our studies as best as we can, but not to cross that line, not to cross that line where we know we're entering into sin. So, Lord, I know it's a fine line, and I know it feels like on a weekly basis where we're going back and forth over the line, but, Lord, may realize that we're nothing without you. We're broken sinners that mourn, uh, poor in spirit, and we need you for forgiveness. We need you for grace. So enable us, Lord, as we step out into community, whether we're new here on our our campus or new in the ethos communities, with the disposition that tries to serve by your grace. Because we're sinners, they're forgiven, that we want to move out and serve others by your grace. And I ask that you would enable us to invest. Invest in your kingdom. Invest for your glory because we have the greatest righteousness and we're clothed in Jesus. And in him we find peace and rest. In your name we pray, amen.